0: Well, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Took a little break from Luke during Easter week. Now we're back. Like, get my glasses out, I see worse. All right. Luke chapter 6, verse 1 to 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. He rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I... Ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The grass withers, flowers fade. This good word, it's good for us. and endures forever, thanks be to God. There's a lot here. I've written a whole lot and it's real unrestful how I wrote it. Since have arrows pointing in different places, so I'm kind of breaking the Sabbath and the way I wrote my notes. But I'm gonna do the best I can. This as I was preparing this sermon, I, I reread several, well portions of several, like actually four discipleship books. I, I liked those books and I didn't I'd kind of forgotten. Um the, about the books, that they arose because the author of the respective book was either getting near burnout, or he was burned out, or he had crashed and had ended up in the hospital uh, because he didn't practice Sabbath. Kind of came home to me a little bit when I accumulated all of them and worked back through them, realized, oh, they all arose from a guy not resting. And so one of the books, the author asks, when was the last time you heard a sermon on sleep? I hope you've heard a sermon, but it hadn't been for me, lamentably. Maybe we need Lyndon to preach us one. See, our culture doesn't value rest. Uh, maybe the idea of it, the way vacations are thought of and pictured on the television, or maybe... We equate rest with entertainment, which are all about entertainment, but renewing rest? Not a rhythm of rest, do you think? That our culture values a rhythm of rest. I'm not good at it. An older experienced doctor writes in the London Times, we doctors in the treatment of nervous diseases are compelled to provide periods of rest. And some of these periods, I think, are only Sundays in arrears. I really like that. That idea that at some point, we're going to rest. It's either through the rhythm of rest, or it's because we break down and we have to have an extended rest, almost like Sundays in arrears. See, God has created us with a rhythm of six days of working And one day to rest, to rest as he describes rest. It's interesting, the whole world follows a weekly pattern, yet it's not self-evident why the world follows a weekly pattern. You know, days follow the earth's rotation on its axis, months follow the lunar cycle, Years follow the earth's revolution around the sun, but why does the world follow a rhythm, a pattern of seven days? Like, why does it do so? I mean, it appears arbitrary, really. And so the best answer, really, is God wove that into humanity for its well-being. His own example of work and rest. It gives testimony to the Creator God. It also gives testimony to God that when we don't follow the rhythm, we get off kilter. We're going to treat this story of Sabbath through two stories of Jesus, where he corrects a non-restful, even burdensome view of the Sabbath. And what we see in the stories really is he stresses the mercy of God in Sabbath rest. So remember where we are in Luke's gospel since we left it for a while. We're in that section that's chapter five, verse one through six, verse sixteen. It's a little section. And in this section of Luke, uh, Luke is showing how Jesus carries out his mission. He shows him carrying out that mission which he outlined in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. When he looked at his hometown crowd, gave his inaugural sermon, What I'm About, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim leaders of the Lord's favor in the day acceptable to God. Now, everything flows from that. And we see that also in this section we see people responding to Jesus, interacting with him. Some very, I mean, wonderful responses to Jesus that we should emulate. And then some also some responses to Jesus we absolutely should not. Our, another way to view it is that Jesus is demonstrating his authority. And he's also showing a lot of mercy. Our passage is part of that. So, our section is the sixth of seven little parts in our overall section. And so, remember what all we've seen thus far? We've seen a miraculous catch of fish, right? And we've seen uh, the healing of the leper. We've seen the healing of a paralytic. We've seen the calling of Levi, an outcast. Then we saw the fifth, the teaching on. You know that Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, you don't need to fast, you need to feast, I'm with you, and the new wineskins. And now we're on the sixth, and that is a Sabbath. You see, Luke doesn't so much arrange things chronologically as he does logically, topically. So when we entered into Luke, he told Theophilus, who he was trying to present Christ to, that I'm writing an orderly account. And we asked, what's the orderly account? It's he puts themes together. So it's interesting how our passage flows from the prior passage when Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, you don't need to fast, you need to feast when I'm with you. And then he says, you know, what I'm bringing is like new wine. Don't put it in those old wineskins. And so talk of a feast leads into Sabbath. And then talk of new wine leads into interpreting the Sabbath in light of Christ, So it flows from that. Well, what do the grain fields teach us? What's Jesus wanting to teach us about the Sabbath? Really about himself. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. It's probably a wheat field. And his disciples get hungry, so they start plucking heads of grain and and rubbing the heads of grain together and then eating them. They get the husk off and the kernel's there, little grains are there, and it's a little little snack. And so they're not stealing. It's not their grain field, but they're not stealing because God's law had said in Deuteronomy 23, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may plit, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And so God makes a distinction, like don't get your sickle out and harvest the grain of your neighbor. That would be stealing. But it's not to walk through his field and if you're a bit hungry and you're out on your own and you've got a ways to go to pluck a few heads of grain and eat them. It's a snack. You notice it's really a caring law that God put into the legislation. It's It's a law that would weave society together. You know, There's no convenience stores to weave in and, and pick up a, a little snack. You, you, in a subsistence farming community, you need some sort of sustenance. And then it caused people that owned property to like care for people. Well, so the issue is not that. The issue is that all this happens on a Sabbath day. And it just so happens that as the disciples are doing this, that the Pharisees see them. It's kind of uncanny that they happen to be present. It just seems they're keeping an eye on Jesus. So they confront the disciples. They confront the disciples saying, why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And there's a tension here. Like, it's like, what's behind, what's, what's driving this question from the Pharisees? Why is it an issue for them? And so... Behind this is about 200 years of history. Really, it's more, but especially 200 years when the Pharisees arose, a time of intense persecution. And so the Pharisees were this lay holiness movement that really had a lot of influence on the people. They took the law seriously. They had a respect for the Sabbath. You have to applaud that. They viewed themselves as the guardians of the Sabbath. Their agenda was this, it's like we've lost everything, we have no king, we're still in exile. Well, let's make sure that we don't get assimilated in the culture, that we don't just cave in. Let's keep ourselves separate from the pagan culture around us that's pressing in all the time. Their agenda, furthermore, is let's speed the coming of Messiah. How are we going to speed the coming of Messiah to judge the nations and restore us to our prosperity and freedom? Well, we think we need to speed the coming of Messiah by stressing ritual purity. That if we can abide by fasting real closely and tithing and and dietary laws and circumcision and chief among all of them, if we hold fast to the Sabbath, Real stringently, then maybe Messiah would come, and so God's sign of the covenant to become for them a cultural badge and a boundary marker. Really, underneath that is a loss of the vision of Israel, which was to be a nation for the world, not a nation against and apart from the world. Well, to keep from violating the Sabbath, the Pharisees and other legal scholars. What they had done is they had developed a code of rules to kind of fence it in, to buffer it, to protect from violating the Sabbath. And so they came up with a list of 39 prohibited activities. It's 39 things you couldn't do or you would be working and you would break the Sabbath. Now the list doesn't come out of the Old Testament. it's an extension of the Old Testament. It's extra rules that God had not instituted. So all of this, their approach to the day, their rules about the day, ended up by this time in Israel of making the Sabbath really a burden for the people. It was what do we what what do we not do on the Sabbath? That was the focus. The focus is what you did and didn't do, not on God and His grace. The focus was on performing correctly so God would come through for you. It was meticulously observing rules so that God would redeem the nation. It was worrying that you were messing up or not measuring up to the leaders over you. That was all around the day. It was clouded over. So the reason they questioned the disciples about is it lawful that they pluck the heads of grain, rub them, and eat them is because, not because they were violating Old Testament law; it's because they were violating their extra rules that they had put over the Old Testament. You see, one of the three of the prohibited activities that the Pharisees had introduced were like no reaping, no threshing, no grinding. Now, that makes sense if you're talking about stopping your normal work day. But it doesn't make sense that the Pharisees are applying it individually for walking in a grain field and just picking a head of grain. It's an, it's an overextension of the rule. It just highlights that legalistic mindset that, that tends to overapply or view everything as a slippery slope. I mean, we've had that in our culture, you know, don't dance or you might slip into immorality, don't have a glass of wine, you might fall into drunkenness, that sort of thing that we slip into. So Jesus sees the Pharisees accost his disciples, so he answers them, he confronts them in two ways. Uh, The first way is he tells the story of David. It's a great story, 1 Samuel. So if you recall in that story, uh, David is in this critical time of need. It's the most dangerous time in David's life. And he's fleeing from Saul who wants to kill him. He's tried to kill him three times already. And so David and his men arrive to a little town called Nob where the tabernacle is. And David's very hungry and his men are hungry. And you recall that he asked the priest for some food, and yet the priest doesn't have any food on hand, no stores of food. All he had is the bread of the presence, the showbread. And you recall that showbread is an awesome image. It's 12 loaves of bread arranged on a gold table in the holy place. And since bread was the staple diet of the people, the 12 loaves symbolized the 12 tribes. And so the 12 tribes are in the holy place, symbolically, at God's table. And so it symbolized they're gathered together with God and fellowshipping with with Him around a table. And that's how God wanted the people to view Him. Now, the law stipulated that that showbread could only be eaten by the priests and nobody else. The law said that, only by the priests. Yet in David's time of need and danger, the priest gives David and his men the bread to sustain them. And so the point here, David as representative, the point here is that human needs take precedence over ceremonial purity. Um, The law was never intended to restrict compassion toward human need. It just wasn't the intent of the law. It never was to be interpreted so rigidly and absolutely. A loving neighbor was basic to all the laws. You remember the fundamental of all of them was love God, love neighbor. You view it through that lens. You can't apply the law in such a way as to void out that weighty purpose. Matthew's version of the count, Jesus quotes Hosea 6:6 6, 6 here. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The point isn't that God didn't want sacrifices, he absolutely did. It's just that if you went about the motions, as Jeremy said, or if you if you engaged in your worship and didn't love people, it was vacated of its significance. And so that passage in Amos is, I mean, disturbing. It it pierces our hearts, the the tendency to go around and engage in our practices towards God with a heart far from him or a heart that lacks love towards others. It's essentially God saying this, don't you think, don't think you've worshiped or really kept the Sabbath just by doing the ritual or keeping any Semblance of work away. I want your heart. I want you to love me and love others. So, like that question betrays that the Pharisees had wrenched the heart out of the Sabbath. It becomes something that was focused on their performance to get something, not something that expressed their love for God and others. It's like God would say, of course you can pluck heads of grain and rub them together if you're hungry on the Sabbath. It's like Mark says about this account, "You know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's his conclusion in the Markin account. Not that you do what you want to, but just recognize the Sabbath itself is for the needs of man. You need it. And human need takes precedence over ceremonial purity. Well, then Jesus goes even further and he says an even stronger answer that's really a trump trump card on this. He then looks at them and says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's, what he's saying to the Pharisees, really it's an invitation. It's an invitation to faith. It's not an easy invitation, but it is. If David could let his men eat the showbread when they were hungry, how much more can I? He's saying. Like if David's time was critical, how much more is my time critical? If David was the king, how much greater king am I? Like, I'm the king right here. You're looking for Messiah and I'm here. I'm the authorized interpreter of my day because the day belongs to me. And if I'm Lord of the Sabbath, And if our Sabbath observance in the Old Testament is unto the Lord, what's Jesus saying? Like, I'm Yahweh in your midst. Like, come to me. You've been wanting me and I'm here. It's a confrontational invitation, but it's an invitation to faith. Well, what about the man with the withered hand? What can that teach us about the Sabbath? Well, Jesus' point is similar, but even stronger. It's another Sabbath day. Jesus goes to the synagogue to teach the people. And just know, Jesus is a faithful Sabbath keeper. He's always in the synagogue teaching the people. So in the synagogue that day, there happens to be a man whose right hand was withered. It's dry, paralyzed. Maybe it's that clenched hand. It's useless. It's his right hand, and Luke's the only one that says of the gospel writers, it's his right hand. Most people are right-handed. I mean, this, this guy was, he couldn't do his work. Like, his family suffered. Whatever happened, maybe an accident or a stroke, but it was, it was useless in their midst. Dr. Luke notices it's the right hand, which I just love. So it says the Pharisees are watching him, and yet it's not just casual watching. Uh, The sense is to watch maliciously, to lie in wait for. Like they're watching him with a purpose. There's a purpose statement. We want to watch you, see if you heal this guy, so we can go to the authorities and accuse you. We're working towards your demise So, the tension here as they watch Jesus and wonder if he's going to heal this man with the withered hand is they had written about this too, these scenarios. And in this case, the tension is that, well, what they wrote is you can't heal on a Sabbath day, you can't apply medical attention on a Sabbath day unless it's life-threatening. If the man is in, or woman, or boy or girl, is in mortal danger, in that case you can. But if he or she is not, then you need to, you have to wait till the next day. The guy wasn't in mortal danger. He could have waited another day. So whereas in the grain field, the situation just happened, it arose because the disciples got hungry and started eating, in this case, Jesus reads their thoughts. He he knows their evil intent, so he goes on the offensive. This issue is important enough to him that he plants his feet squarely and forces the issue. The Lord of the Sabbath judges that it's so critical, your mindset versus true observance of the Sabbath, that I'm gonna make a point right here. And so he calls the guy up to stand right next to him in the midst of everybody, in public. The Pharisees might be secretively working the system, but he's gonna do it publicly. So Jesus asks with the man with the withered hand right next to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? I mean, what a statement. You know, in the first vignette in the grain field, the Pharisees are asking, like, that's not lawful. Now Jesus turns it on him and says, okay, you're the experts in the law, I guess. You tell me if this is lawful or not. So he contrasts two pairs. One pair is what he's doing, the other pair is what the Pharisees are doing. Calls a spade a spade here. Jesus says, I'm doing good, and I'm saving life. And Jesus says about the Pharisees, you're doing harm, and you're destroying life. So which of these two is lawful? Just tell me. To do good and save life, or to do harm and destroy life. Expert in the law, you respond. And then he just looks at them. That must have been uncomfortable. And Mark says he looks at them angry and also saddened. Like it makes him angry, indignant, that anyone would restrict mercy to someone who needed it. And it makes him sad that they just had missed the focus of the Sabbath day. That people had elevated man-made rules above the weightier matters of the law which is showing love to suffering people. That it converted the blessing of the Sabbath into something that impeded real care and concern. So in what sense had the Pharisees doing harm and destroying life here? Well in two senses. One is the whole fact of opposing a man's healing is in fact doing him harm and destroying life. The whole focus of opposing love and mercy on the Sabbath is to have a practice of doing harm and destroying life to those around you. But there's even a more pointed issue going on because whereas Jesus is doing good and saving life, their whole agenda right here is to work hate and envy and work towards Jesus' demise. And in Mark, after the account, they get together with Herodians and seek to destroy Jesus. They they're going after murder on the Sabbath. And Jesus is promoting life. So Jesus looks at the man in front of them and says, stretch out your hand. And amazingly, the man stretches out this clenched hand like life is restored to it, strength, and he's restored to wholeness. And that miracle is God's endorsement that Jesus's instruction about the day is lawful, that we should save life and do good on the Lord's day. It's amazing that the Pharisees don't kind of go, huh, I mean, maybe I got it wrong. You know, at least we can discuss that. (laughs) But instead, immediately jump into planning for his destruction, such as the power of law, to blind us to grace. Okay, for us, quickly. What does that have to do with us? Well, Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath applies to us. It applies to us today. I mean, our Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath was the seventh day. Why? It's symbolic of a rest to come, a rest to come. From the resurrection of Christ to the end of the world when Jesus returns is the first day of the week because rest has come in the cross of Christ and because in principle, you and I already live in glory. When you step out on Monday morning, just know that I have a house in glory and that's where I belong. That's why the rest is on the first day of the week. Matthew 11, Jesus shares his heart Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What's the weariness and the heavy ladenness? That is those who are trying to work to get God to accept you. Case in point, the way you're observing the Sabbath. I will give you rest. In fact, I'm going to do it at the cross because that's my heart for you to give rest for your souls. So... The center of the Sabbath is Jesus is my rest. He silences the law's loud thunder. He works for us. He obeyed the law. He offered himself. He quenched it at the cross. He rose in glory to conquer hell, death, and sin. He opened rest for us. And he invites us on the Lord's Day to have anticipations of that, encouragements of that rest as we pass through the wilderness of this world, heading to the promised land of glory. So our weekly Sunday, Lord's Day Resurrection is an anticipation of glory. It's God giving you time, regular time, to deepen your rest in Christ. If there are critical needs, deal with them. If a doctor has to go on rotations, that's one of those. If the ox is in the ditch, that's another one. We don't get bent out of shape about that, but we try to limit things for its purpose. And we do good. We save life on the Sabbath. If loving neighbors appropriate and important every day, how much more on the day in which Jesus conquered our enemy and did us good and saved our life. But even more than this, it's important to have a vision for the Lord's Day possible to go into all this but it's for our flourishing and our faithfulness. That song we open with, O day of rest and gladness. So think, do you have a vision for the Lord's day? Sunday is God meeting your needs. Sunday is God showing you mercy. Leviticus 23 says it's a Sabbath of solemn rest and it's a Sabbath to the Lord. A Sabbath of solemn rest. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew "cease," desist, and rest. Like the focus is rest, but it's a particular kind of rest. It's the kind of rest we need. In this rest, it's sanctified to the Lord. We rest from what normally occupies us in order to rest in the Lord in the way we need it. So the preacher Eric Alexander says, I like this little phrase, it's helped me this week. The Sabbath is not so much something we do is something we enter into. Not so much something we do is something we enter into. So just think of the Sabbath in Scripture, Exodus 20 the fourth commandment god says remember the sabbath and keep it holy remember because we tend to forget so how do we keep it holy well we don't work or require our dependent laborers to work and visibly we rest So why do we do that? Well, the reason given in the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, God says, for in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. He goes from Exodus 20 back to Genesis two, the seventh day. It's a creation ordinance. You're built that way. Imagine Moses is writing this to a bunch of slaves when he writes it. Imagine how they would have received it. Imagine how subsistence farmers receive this. So God looks at Israel that's just coming out of slavery, that thinks they're worthless except for what they produce. And the command says, look, I created you in my image and you're worth a lot to me. You work like I do. And you know what? You get the privilege of rest like I rest. You're like me. God looks at them and says, Look, I created everything, and therefore everything is dependent upon me, so you can let it go a day and rest. I've got it. I've got the Milky Way. And so that requires, imagine, especially for a subsistence farmer, a lot of faith, you know? Well, then you have the other account in Deuteronomy 5, the fourth commandment. God says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy separate it, put it into practice. But why? What's the reason in Deuteronomy 5? He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Moses writes to a group of slaves. God's just redeemed them from bondage, grinding, cruel bondage. The reason here, therefore, is not creation. It's recreation. It's not Creation, but new creation, not creation, but redemption. Like both bases are covered in the reason to separate the day. He says, Remember it, because you were slaves and I redeemed you. Therefore, enjoy your liberty and help others enjoy liberty. Work the gospel out in your relationships. So, in Christ, see that all points to Christ, the ultimate redemption from the evil Pharaoh of hell, death, and sin is Jesus at the cross who satisfies the law and conquers the devil and rises in glory. Therefore, you're redeemed from the bondage of sin to be remade as new creations. And throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, it was a particular kind of rest where we showed mercy. And so... Uh, throughout the Old Testament it was a particular kind of rest and it was a rest that we need not the one that immediately comes to us sometimes, so just a couple of quick things it's a sign of the covenant and continues to operate as a sign for that reason working did bring curses in the Old Testament we ought to expect if we run through the Sabbath or the Lord's Day there's going to be consequences and disciplines in the Old Testament, since it was a sign of the covenant, blessings were lavish, promises were lavish, but we ought to expect in the new covenant even more. Every Lord's Day is a sign of Jesus' resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was called a feast day. I love that. It was a feast day. It was a delight, a refreshment, a joy, a party. You gathered around the table. You deepened your friendships and relationships appropriate for the Lord's day. It was life-giving. In the Old Testament, it was a day of public worship. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, Psalm 122 or Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. It was a day... In distinction from the other days, that you could have sustained thought and meditation on the wonders of God creator and God redeemer. How much more for us. And it was a day to extend grace, both in evangelism and mercy, to do good and to save life. Throughout the Old Testament, it's associated with helping people out. A robust view of the Lord's day, the kind of rest God says we need. So let's practice it. Let's practice it. You do. Let's keep on wholeheartedly responding to God's invitation to rest. Let's enter into even more the wonder of God as creator and gracious redeemer. It's a day of praise, of pondering, and of prayer. Let's silence the voices. It's something unique about our culture, maybe more than any culture on the face of the earth ever before, that the voices come at us like clanging cymbals crashing around us all the time. It's hard to, it's almost impossible to have sustained thought of the Lord. There's the guilt voice, I should have done that, I shouldn't have done that. There's the achievement voice, I've got to do this, I've got to add this. There's the greed voice, I want that, I need that. There's the anger voice, I'll get him, I'll pay back her. There's the vanity voice, I'm better, I'm less than. There's the anxiety voice, what if? There's the FOMO voice, I'm missing out. There's the entertainment voice, I need more distraction. There's the acceptance voice, who do I need to please? All of these voices are are speaking constantly. The Lord's Day is your day that's set apart. When you say, I'm not going there with those voices, there's another voice I want to hear today. It's your day to cultivate community and relationship in a way that's difficult to do in other days. It's your day to do good and to save life. I just think, you know, as we as a local church, as we keep at it, keep practicing, repenting, believing, trusting, that we should expect God to do something great, significant in our lives, in our fellowship, and in our world, as we just stick with his rhythm of work and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, for his glory and his kingdom. May God bless you abundantly. Amen.